continue in our study of this wonderful book. Uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians is sometimes called the epistle of joy. And the words rejoice and the words joy, they appear 13 times in this book. However, the joy that appears in Philippians is a particular kind of joy, the joy of contentment, even in difficult circumstances, as we have already seen. And in our study of verses 12 to 18, last week from chapter 1, we learned from Paul's example the principle of how to, of how to overcome circumstances with a joyful attitude. And even though Paul was under house arrest in Rome, and even though his future was uncertain, Paul wrote, yes, and I will rejoice. So though Paul was imprisoned and there were other Christians who were purposefully seeking to cause him additional distress, Paul focused on what God was doing. He focused on the gospel. Christ was becoming well known throughout the whole Praetorian God and the emperor's palace. Other believers were encouraged to speak the word of God without fear. And even though seeking to cause him distress, were, were preaching the gospel. And Paul was rejoicing in all of that. Paul was not as concerned about the motivations of people as he was on the fact that Jesus Christ was being proclaimed. And for him that was enough. And Paul rejoiced because God was at work and that which was most important to him was being accomplished, the spread of the gospel. So please stand with me this morning as we read our next portion of scripture from Philippians chapter 1. We will be reading from verse 19 to verse 26. Philippians chapter 1, verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Father, please teach us more about this joy, the joy that overcomes our circumstances, the joy that overcomes the world, the joy that overcomes our sorrow. Father, teach us how we can keep our focus upon you through difficult times. Teach us, Lord, as we read here from the scriptures, how it is possible for us to live for your glory and to look forward to being with you, Lord. We pray that you would put the things of the world aside, all the things that are noise, that keep us from hearing from you, that keep us distracted. We pray today, Lord, that you would speak to us, Lord. May we not leave here today without hearing from you. 
So please, Lord, we pray. Convict those who need to be convicted. Encourage those who need to be encouraged. And may you be glorified today from our responses. Speak to us through your word, Lord. May your spirit open our ears and our hearts today to the gospel. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, in this sermon, in this passage of Scripture, Paul writes one of the most important verses in the whole Bible for Christian living. It's a mission statement of sorts that dictates how he chooses to live and how he shapes his perspective. What is a mission statement? Well, a mission statement is a formal summary of the aims and the values of, a, of an organization, of a company, or an individual. I read a blog this week about how to write a successful mission statement. And the writer said that a successful mission statement touches on the following key elements. And he gave four elements. He said, value, why does your brand exist? Inspiration, your employees should feel inspired to work harder to make your vision a reality. Plausibility, is your mission statement realistic? And then specificity, did I say that right? <laughs> I practiced that. <laughs> specificity, the mission statement should be as specific as possible about what your company does. And then they go on to say, when you create a mission statement that is concise and conveys your own core values, you not only empower your own employees to work harder, you'll also feel inspired yourself. So here are a few mission statements. Here's one from Hershey's. Continuing Milton Hershey's legacy of commitment to consumers, community, and children, we provide high-quality Hershey's products while conducting our business in a socially responsible and environmentally sustainable manner. Here's Facebook's mission statement. To give people the power to share and make the world more open and connected. Here's BBC's mission statement. To enrich people's lives with programs and services that inform, educate, and entertain. Here's Microsoft. To enable people and businesses throughout the world to realize their full potential. And here's the Apostle Paul's from verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul's mission statement is concise. It conveys his own core values. And it is plausible and it is inspiring, as we will study this morning. And Paul's aim is to treasure Christ above all things. And he knows that if he does that, if he lives a, a Christ-centered, selfless life, honoring Christ with every breath that he takes, it will actually make death something he doesn't have to be afraid of, but something he can look forward to because it means more of what he loves. Jesus Christ. And I hope and pray at the end of the sermon you'll be able to identify with Paul's mission statement. And you'll be willing to adopt it as your own. And I pray this mission statement will drive you and change you to treasure what is far more precious than anything else in the world, that being Jesus Christ. So my first point this morning is from verse 21, sorry, verse 19 to 21. And this is Paul's expectation. Paul's expectation. And Paul states in verse 19 that he expected through their prayers 
and the provision of the Spirit that he would be delivered. That's what it says in verse 19. And there he also uses the word new, um, the Greek word oida. And this word is to know for certain. So he knew for certain that he was going to be delivered. Paul was not guessing that he would be delivered, but he had this absolute confidence that he would be delivered or he would be saved. But what exactly is it that Paul is expecting to be delivered from? Or what has he been expected to be saved from? Well, the word deliverance in this context, remember, let's not take it out of context. It does not mean a release from prison, but rather something far more important. And what he's talking about is his ultimate vindication before his heavenly father when he hears his father say to him, well done, my good and faithful servant. This was what he was confident in. As we see in Matthew 25, verse 21, you have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. This was his confidence. This was his expectation. And this deliverance that Paul wrote to the Philippians about would come through their prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now remember, in view of Paul's circumstances, he is imprisoned. He is chained to Roman soldiers. And, and here he's focused. It's remarkable that his main focus was not on getting released from prison, but rather on exalting Christ. Whether he lived or whether he died wasn't the issue here. All that mattered to Paul was that he exalted Christ, was that he honored Christ in his life. And Paul's words in verses 19 are, are word for word from the book of Job. Paul is quoting Old Testament here, Job chapter 13, verse 16 to be exact. And in that context, Job was on trial, not by Romans, but by his friends. And he wanted to be saved from being found to be a hypocrite. And that is why he wanted to be vindicated. He wanted to honor God. And in the same way, Paul is saying that as the Philippians prayed for him, and as, as God's Spirit enabled him, he would be delivered from denying Jesus Christ, that he would be delivered from disgracing the gospel at his trial before Caesar. He was being persecuted. He was going through a tremendous persecution. And the last thing Paul wanted to do was to shame the very gospel of Jesus Christ. And before God, in the ultimate court, Paul wanted to be vindicated by exalting Christ, even if it meant martyrdom, where he could be with the Lord. And the only cause for shame to Paul would be not to hear well done from Christ when he stood before him on that day of judgment. Paul wanted to be found faithful above all else. As we see in verse 20, he makes it very clear. Look at verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that, will, that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul's driving concern 
was not that he would be delivered from this house arrest, from these chains, but that he would not be at all ashamed of anything in his life, by life or by death. And Paul did not want his imprisonment to result in him succumbing to temptations and, and in his own weakness that he would bring shame on Christ. He wanted to exalt Christ in all that he did, whether it was in life or by death. And that is why it was important to him that the Philippian believers were praying. And to summarize Paul's thinking, look at verse 21. He says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This is his mission statement. A few commentators agree that in this context, to live is Christ means that for Paul to keep on living here means, of course, a Christ-centered, Christ-empowered ministry where he could continue to serve. He would, he would be doing this. And Paul knew that that's what his life was for. The Apostle Paul was clear and he was focused on the purpose of his life. And I believe that the purpose for which he lived is the only purpose that takes eternity into account. He wasn't living for the temporary things that fade away. That purpose will be fulfilled. And in short, Paul's purpose is in verse 21, for me to live is Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary, he points out that sentence is not only a statement of the apostle's true experience, but also it is a standard of judgment which confronts us with the most thorough test of our Christian faith we will ever encounter. Every person who professes Christ as Savior must grapple with the question, can I honestly say for me to live is Christ? And if I can say yes, then I have also answered that fundamental question, what about death and what lies beyond? It will be gain for me. If for me to live is Christ, then for me to die will be gain. That's what he's saying here. More application to follow at the end here. But let me, let me show you my second point in verse 22 to verse 24. We see, we see Paul's decision. He says in verse 22, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful, sorry, fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. So Paul is needing here to make a decision. He's facing a problem. He's facing a dilemma that needs to be solved. Is he going to continue to live or is he going to die? And the first part of the dilemma Paul is speaking about is to live because he says in verse 22 that would result in fruitful labor. But second, to die would mean being with Christ, something he wanted to be, something he wanted to, to have in his life. And we see this is clear in the second part of verse 21. He says there, and to die is gain. To die is gain. Here's the dilemma. And one commentator says, to die is to bring that ministry to an end, but even so there is only one gain. Since the ministry is not an end in itself, and it is now swallowed up in the glorious delight of the unshielding presence of the exalted Jesus himself. And that is what Paul went on to say in verse 23. I am hard pressed between the two. He wasn't sure which one would be the best. Even though he said it's far better for him 
to be with the Lord. My desire is to, de is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. This was his desire. This was his, his, his selfish desire. And he says that. Paul had a decision he needed to make. But then he says in verse 24, But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So Paul believed that he would be acquitted of the false charges against him and that he would be able to continue his apostolic ministry. And Paul wanted to serve with the Philippians. He wanted to encourage them. And he knew selfishly he wanted to be with the Lord, but he knew it was far more profitable, far more fruitful to stay and minister with the Philippian church. Paul knew the Philippians needed his help. They needed his ministry. So he made the decision to continue to remain in the flesh on their account, as he says, on their account. But confidence of this, this decision, we get to verse 25 and verse 26. My third point, we see Paul's confidence here. And verse 25 tells us where this knowledge led to. Look at, look at verse 25. He says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And then he says in verse 26, So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And what is astonishing is that Paul's decision was not based on his own welfare or based on his own comfort, but on the opportunity to serve, to serve others. That was the, the sole factor in his decision here. And selfishly, Paul already mentioned what was best for him. But Paul stayed focused on, on what was best, fruitful labor, and on serving the Philippians and their progress and joy in the faith. Paul's ultimate goal for, for his disciples there from Philippi was for them to grow and glory in Christ. And look, he says that in verse 26. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Jesus Christ. And Paul explains here that his earthly ministry will continue in order that Christ may be glorified through their partnership in the gospel that he's already spoken about in in verse 5. So Paul's decision was based on his confident determination to serve others. That's what this whole passage is about. As Christians, the focus of our lives is to be like Jesus Christ, not to be like the world. Like Paul, it should be to live as Christ, to die as gain. May that become more true of us each day. D.A. Carson, he makes the following application from these verses that I think are, are helpful for us to consider. He says, Paul's deepest hopes for his own immediate future turn neither on the bliss of immediately gaining heaven's portals, nor on returning to a fulfilling ministry and escaping the pangs of death, but on what is best for his converts. Often we are tempted to evaluate alternatives by thinking through what seems best for us? How often do we raise as a first principle what is best for the church? When faced with, say, a job offer that would take us to another city or another country, or with mortal illness that calls forth our diligent intercession, how quickly do we employ Paul's criteria here established 
what would be best for the church? What would be best for my brothers and my sisters in Christ? Great question. Kent Hughes, another commentator, he sums it up this way with another great application. He says, The clarity and sanity of Paul's confident dictum for me to live is Christ and to die is gain shows up the shallow tragedy of so many in Paul's days and today. Among the ruins of ancient Carthage, there is an inscription carved by a Roman soldier. To laugh, to hunt, to bathe, to game, that is life. To laugh, to hunt, to bathe, to, that, to game, that is life. In other words, for me to live is to hunt, go to the baths, and have great parties. It is the same today. Because most will fill in the blank of, for me to live is anything but Christ. According to the tabloids, he goes on to say, and the celebrity magazines, for me to live is to fornicate, to accumulate, to dine well, or on a more prosaic level, for me to live is to golf, to work, to garden, to travel, to watch TV, to ski, to shop till I drop. Of course, if this is, of course, if this be our life, then death is the loss of everything. Let me just repeat that. Of course, if this is, if this be our life, then death is the loss of everything. Now, Joel Olstein is well known for a book that he wrote called "Your Best Life Now." And the book is all about the power of positive thinking. And the message of that book is, God helps those who think well of themselves. And one book review says the following about the book. He says, Osteen talks about God throughout, but it is not the God of the Bible he has in mind. Osteen's God is little more than the mechanism that gives the power to positive thinking. There is no cross. There is no sin. There is no redemption or salvation or eternity. Even Jesus himself is mentioned only two or three times in the book. And one of those is as the punchline of the story about the little tree who has bad self-esteem until he figures out he's being turned into the cross on which Jesus is to be crucified. And that story may have Jesus' name in it, but it is not a story about Jesus. It, like the rest of the book, is a story about feeling good about yourselves. So why am I mentioning this? I think this is a very important application. You know, to say that life on this earth is the best that you can have is absolutely true if you're not a Christian. This is your best life now. Because once you die, you're going to hell. The non-Christian lives his best life in the here and the now because his next life is one of no hope. There's no joy. There's no meaning. There's no satisfaction. There's no relief from eternal suffering. And those who have rejected Jesus Christ will spend an eternity in outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And seeking to enjoy life while they can makes perfect sense for them because they really are living their best life now. 
the next life will be truly dreadful. But for the Christian, however, life here, no matter how good it is, or how bad it is, as we see with the Apostle Paul, nothing compared to the life that awaits us in heaven. The glories of heaven, the glories of eternal life, the glories of righteousness, the glories of joy, the glories of peace, the glories of perfection, no more sin, and the glories of God's presence, Christ's glorious companionship, and the rewards that we will receive, and all else God has planned is our heavenly inheritance, is what Christians can look forward to. And it will cause even the best life on earth to pale in comparison. And like Paul, our decision must not be based on our own welfare or our own comfort, but on the opportunity to serve others, on the opportunity to glorify Christ in the process. Our ultimate goal and our highest ambition should not be the treasures of this world or the, or the praises of man, but rather to hear our Lord Jesus say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That is our hope. That is our joy. That is our treasure. And for those who know Jesus as their personal savior, our best lives await us in heaven where we will spend eternity in joy and bliss, enjoying a life that is better than the best we could have now on this earth. But let me conclude this, this morning. Let me, let me bring this back to Paul's mission statement for what we, we started with in the very beginning. And I do think Paul's mission statement is a mission statement that every believer should have. He says in verse 21, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Can you say with the Apostle Paul that your mission statement is, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain? Can you truthfully say that? Can I truthfully say that? And we need to be honest in examining our lives before the Lord. To bring this purpose into focus, we need to, to answer two questions. And this is my my application this morning. We need to answer these questions. What does it mean to live as Christ and how do we do this? What does it mean and how do we do this? I think this is a very practical lesson here that we need to learn. Firstly, to live Christ means to live in union with Christ so that He becomes my all in all. It means that we need to be born again first and foremost. We are never going to love the things of heaven, the things of eternity, while our treasure is on this earth, folks. If this world is our home and this is what we pursue, that means we don't really have a relationship or an understanding of who God is and what He has done to reconcile us to Himself through the death and the resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. The concept of being in Christ was vital to Paul's understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Remember, he starts this letter in verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. 
to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus. The very moment a person believes in Jesus Christ and receives Jesus as their Savior, he is in Jesus Christ. He is joined organically in a living and a real union with Christ. Christ as the head and the body as the members, the church. In Jesus Christ. To be in Christ means that all that is true of Christ is true of the believer. And Paul writes about that in Romans chapter 6, verse 10 and 11. He says, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lived, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The believer is in union with Christ. Not opposed to Christ. Not opposed to Christ's values. Not opposed to Christ's character. But in union with Christ. While that is our true standing before God, we need to grow in our experience of the reality of that standing. So that in our daily lives, we, we live in fellowship with Christ, not in opposition to Christ. We are still in the flesh, and we need to die to the flesh daily. But we are in union with Christ, and we need to experience that reality on a day-by-day -day basis, depending on Him for everything. To live in Christ means growing to know Christ intimately, learning about His character, studying the Word of God. It means growing to love Christ with with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our minds. It means submitting to all of my thoughts, of our emotions, of our, of our words and our deeds, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, so that I seek to please Him above all. To be in Christ means growing to experience Christ as my, my all in all. And not looking to the world for our joy, but Christ as our sufficient Savior. And every as aspect of our life must be centered around the Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious person of Christ, and nothing less is the Christian life. Of course, our experience of living Christ is a process that is never fully realized. Paul says in Philippians, look there, chapter 3, he says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Even the most godly Christians will have times when, when Christ seems distant, and, and the soul is, is dull or sluggish. But in this life, we never reach a point where we are not tempted by sin, where we do not have the battle of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the, the boastful pride of life. But each of us who are truly children of God will have as our focus to live in a, in a personal, experiential way the fact of our union with Christ so that He becomes our all in all. The decisions that we make, the choices we make center around our Savior, Jesus Christ, our all in all. 
That's what it means to be in Christ. But secondly, how? How do we do this? How do we live Christ? How do we exalt Christ in everything that we do? He says in verse 20, that with all boldness, Christ shall now, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. This is just another way of stating the great goal of the Christian life, which is to glorify God by everything we are and by everything we do. And, and in common language, to glorify God simply means to make God look good. To make God look good as He truly is. That's how we live in Christ. To make God look good in everything that we do. Notice there in verse 20 that the way we exalt Christ is through our bodies. This is a very practical concept, a very comprehensive concept. It means that we may either exalt Christ or bring shame to His name by the things we do in our bodies, by our, by our works by our behavior, by our attitudes. Let me ask you, how do you use your eyes day to day? Do your eyes bring glory to Christ? You know, a lustful glance at a woman or at a man or even at a, a sexy picture does not exalt Christ. How do you use your ears to glorify Christ? Do you listen to Music that defiles you? Do you listen to music that exalts Christ, that glorifies Christ? Do you listen to gossip? Do you listen to slander? How do you use your tongue? How do you use your hands? How do you use your, your feet? Do you use your body in purity or for sensuality? What about your personal appearance? Do you dress to be seductive or to attract attention to yourself? Or do you exalt Christ by the way that you dress? Paul is saying here, to live Christ means to exalt Him through everything that we do. Everything. Not just some things on a Sunday when we go to church, but everything that we do. To live Christ means to die to our selfish desires in order to live to serve others for Jesus' sake. This is my last application. Corporately, this is what it means to live Christ. And Paul was willing to deny his desires for the sake of serving others for Christ's sake. Of course, the final decision as to whether Paul lived or died rested with the Lord. That wasn't his decision. But Paul was willing to live, to carry on for the sake of fruitful service, if that's what the Lord wanted him to do. He wasn't just going to retire and go and live in a cabin on a, on, a, on a hill somewhere, away from everybody. He was going to use the rest of his life for God's glory. He was going to use his body, use his strength, use his life to serve others, not to serve himself. If you're not denying self in order to serve Christ, you're not, you're not living for Christ. Don't be mistaken here. You're living for yourself. And many people today have the notion that, you know, that Christ is there to serve me rather than that I am to serve Christ. 
So many people think the church is here to meet their needs. And if it doesn't, they, they drop out of church or they try to find one that is, that is better or that meets their needs or has a better, a diff, better programs. How many people have asked me about our, our music ministry or, or, or these types of ministries or that type of ministries for their benefit? Not willing to come and help in those ministries where, where we need help. Not willing to serve, but willing to be served. That's not what church is about, folks. That's not why we go to church. The church that has the best youth ministry or the church that has the best music ministry. We go to a church so we can serve. Where we can use our bodies for God's glory. Not so that we can be spectators in the, in, in the cricket stadium, watching people do the work. We need to get back to the biblical truth. That we have been saved to serve Christ, to serve others, to love the way Christ loved, unconditionally, sacrificially. A great application for us as we move back to the zoo. We need help, folks. We need help to serve. I just had a conversation this morning with somebody who wanted to help serve in the, the youth ministry. Praise God for that. Don't be a spectator. In the words of Brother Ray Deliaco, be available, be available. In his commentary on Philippians, Dr. Kent Hughes tells a story about Dr. Andrew Chong. He was a former elder in the church that Dr. Hughes pastored for, for many years. And several weeks before Dr. Chong passed away, he was taken to the Northwestern Hospital in Chicago to have a stent cleared of blockage and the procedure was invasive and after some time the surgeon came out and indicated that he could not go on because there was too much bleeding and he said you better get your family here he may not make it through the night so all the children were rushed to Dr. Chong's bedside where they gathered weeping and saying their goodbyes and Dr. Chong had just one sorry Dr. Chong had just come out of the anesthetic and he was in intense pain and he was unable to speak. And seeing his family's distress, he made a curious motion with his finger, which they finally understood as a, as a request for a pen. And of late, he had been unable to write in a straight line. But now very slowly and with intense deliberation, he wrote 12 words in a single column. For me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. And underneath this column of single words, Dr. Chong wrote another word, hallelujah. And the writing of that last word took him a full minute as he made sure that he spelled it correctly. And then he spoke, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. And Dr. Hughes concludes, it was his soul's spontaneous last will and testament. Dr. Chong served in the ministry of the church. He lived his life as a servant for God's glory. And as he lay on his bed, ready to give an account of his life, he was not ashamed, folks. He knew that his life counted for God's glory, not for his own selfish ambition. And he was able to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Can you say that? 
for me to live is Christ? Do you know Christ? Is Christ in you? Have you taken up his cross? Can you confidently add to die is gain? If you were to die this week, would you stand before the Lord unashamed of the life that you have lived in service for his glory like the apostle Paul did? If you can do that, then you can joyfully add the words that Dr. Chong added, hallelujah. Nothing's changed. God is good all the time. We are the ones who need to remember that and to not waste the lives that God has given us to live for his glory. Amen. Father, do, we do thank you for the book of Philippians. We thank you, Lord, for what you are teaching us about the gospel and what it means to reflect the gospel to a world around us that is dying in their sins. And today you've shown us, Lord, that if we are in Christ, we need to be serving Christ. We need to be serving his body. And Father, please, we pray that we would do that as a church. Thank you, Lord, for the church that you have put us in, that we can minister alongside, that can minister to us, that we can encourage, that can encourage us, that we can serve. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be a church full of servants, not a church full of spectators that are just wanting to consume. Lord, we pray as we plan to leave here soon that you would expand our ministry and that you would add people to the church, those who would be saved and that who would be in Christ and who would be willing to serve so that our ministry can multiply, Lord, and then it can reach in other places where it hasn't reached before. Please, Lord, we pray that you would use us for your glory, that we would not waste our lives on things that do not matter to you, that we would be able to stand before you one day unashamed at the judgment seat, knowing, Lord, that we have spent our lives well, that we would hear you say, well done, my good and faithful servants enter into the joy of the Lord. May that be our life's goal and ambition, Lord. And may our mission statement be for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Save the lost that need to be saved today, Lord, we pray. And encourage those today who are walking in Christ and who want to honor you in better ways. Lord, we pray, help us to do that as a church. We'll ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.